I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There are more than a few verses in the Bible that talk about the wrath of God. The good news is that God's wrath has never been aimed at us, but toward our sin. He is not a God who inflicted punishment upon His Son that was due to us, but a God who took the consequence of sin upon Himself in order to rescue us from sin's grip. And our capacity to grasp that distinction I just stated can have an enormous impact on our spiritual growth and maturity, as well as how we view others, especially unbelievers. I've never been into comic strips or comic books personally, but today I guess I am. In your bulletin insert this morning, I've included a comic strip of sorts that is artistically pretty terrible, because I created it, but it tells a parable, a parable written by New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey. It's a story about the mother of a young boy named Johnny, no relation, and one day she was preparing to host a social gathering for some of her friends. So she spread out a tablecloth over her dining table and placed a large glass pitcher of lemonade on top of it. And she told her son, Johnny, don't pull on the tablecloth, because if you do, the pitcher will fall on you and you will get hurt. But as soon as her back was turned, what did Johnny do? He grabbed the tablecloth and started pulling And as the mother looked over her shoulder and saw the pitcher of lemonade about to crash down on Johnny's unprotected head, immediately the mom experienced a flash of deep disappointment and anger as she said to herself, if Johnny had only listened to me, we wouldn't have this problem. But this story has three possible endings. In the first ending, mom is mad. Her anger drives her to rush across the room, grab the pitcher of lemonade, and say, Johnny, I told you not to pull on the tablecloth. Now you take this. And she dumps the lemonade on Johnny's head. But in ending number two, a third actor in this drama is introduced. This third actor is Billy, Johnny's older brother. Billy's been in the next room working on his homework. Again, in this ending, Mom is mad. She rushes across the room, grabs the pitcher, and in anger says to Johnny, Johnny, I should dump this on you because you deserve it for disobeying me. But if I do, you'll catch a cold. So in a loud voice, she calls Billy into the room. And the mother dumps the lemonade on Billy and then says to Johnny, See what you made me do? Feeling very guilty, 
Johnny crawls under the table and starts crying. Now, these first and second endings represent the story that many have been presented to explain God's work of salvation in Jesus on the cross. We have all sinned, and God could have responded in the way of ending number one, but He graciously responded according to ending number two instead. This is the way many church communities explain salvation And Anglicanism is not immune, but particularly it is explained this way in many evangelical and Reformed traditions. It's how they explain why Jesus had to die. And the fancy word for that is atonement. Atonement just means why Jesus had to die or what the cross accomplished. Theories of atonement attempt to explain why Jesus had to die, and I've, I've even listed, listed some of the more popular ones on the back side of your comic book this morning. Um, but in many parts, I'm not going to go through them, but in many parts of the Western church, the penal substitution theory, highlighted in red, has become the dominant explanation for why Jesus had to die. So I'll just read that one. Penal substitution contends that God is holy and that humans are sinful. And because God is holy, He must be true to His own holiness and can't simply ignore human sin. So there must be a just punishment, hence the word penal, meaning penalty. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, stood in the sinner's place, absorbing God's just punishment on sinners, hence the word substitution, with a special emphasis on his not just dying for us, but his brutal suffering. One could argue that penal substitution, this theory, is woven into the very fabric of American society because the Puritans who fled the Church of England on the Mayflower and in some sense started this country were adherents of the penal substitution theory through and through committed to it. Thus, one might say that penal substitution is as American as apple pie and thanksgiving, such that most Christians, including myself, can't help but assume the accuracy of its central tenets. Even if we've never heard of an atonement theory, right? never even thought about that word, The penal substitution theory represents a view of God that may feel most intuitive or natural to us anyway, particularly if our life experience of, say, parents or authority figures has been closer to the the mom of endings number one and two than ending number three. We'll get to three in a bit. In other words, it makes sense if we've lived in a world that is punishment and penalty-driven. But evidence that penal substitution has become the dominant view in much of Western Christianity, evidence of that can be found very readily. It's all over contemporary Christian music, but also in some of the hymns that we sing. For example, in the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love, beautiful hymn. In that hymn, we sing, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son 
to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away from Jesus. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons, us, to glory. It's the theory underlying the way many tend to present the faith evangelistically, those who who do such things, emphasizing how because of sin, we deserve God's punishment. But Jesus took that punishment upon himself. That's kind of the basic presentation that maybe is kind of the majority approach in evangelicalism these days. Another example is there's general consensus that the penal theory is what comes through the most in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, and what motivated Gibson to emphasize the gory nature of Jesus' crucifixion especially. So it's everywhere, right? It's all over the place. It's in our water. It's in the air we breathe in Western society. But the good news is that God's wrath has never been aimed at us but at our sin, and there's a difference. He is not a God who inflicted punishment upon his son that was due to us, but a God who took the consequence of our sin upon himself in Jesus in order to rescue us from sin's grip. One of the problems with penal substitution theory's dominance in Western society is that it's actually unbiblical. That's right. It's unbiblical. This morning in our passage from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But the problem isn't so much the substitution part, that Jesus died a death that our sin destined us for, but the penal part, the element of punishment, The idea that God's wrath and anger are, in fact, directed at us as persons rather than at our sin, like mom number one in the comic. And that God, but God then chose, God the Father chose to kill Jesus instead of punishing us, like mom number two. As scholar Mako Nagasawa observes, to anyone raised in a penal substitution-soaked church culture, the New Testament witness is remarkable because in it we find the Father did not afflict Jesus with suffering before his death. We as humans afflicted him with suffering. We in our sin killed Jesus. The Father didn't. Humanity, and specifically the Jews, but they were representing what all of us would have done in their position given our sinfulness. Humanity killed Jesus, not God the Father. Now, one of the primary verses cited in support of God the Father punishing Jesus is when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross from Psalm 22. We read it this morning. But as Nagasawa points out, in that psalm that we read, David David wrote the psalm. He was lamenting being forsaken to the Gentiles, right? That God forsook him to his enemies. Not that God forsook him in an absolute sense. That God let his enemies attack him, affect him, overcome him. Just as Jesus had been handed over to the Gentiles in the Passion, right? 
But David didn't believe God had abandoned him in an absolute sense, and neither is Jesus saying that when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so to conclude that Jesus felt that God the Father abandoned him completely does not come from sound biblical interpretation, and yet we sing what? We sing, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. Y'all know that one? Or we sing, the Father turned his face away. Y'all with me here? So where did this idea of penal substitution come from? It's now so ubiquitous. Well, most believe its origins can be traced to St. Anselm in the 11th century. Although Anselm was only concerned with the idea of satisfying God's justice, it was really John Calvin in the 16th century with some inspiration from Martin Luther It was really Calvin who codified the penal substitution theory as we know it. So what does that mean? That means for more than 1,000 years of church history, if not 1,500, no one understood Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in this penal way. And the Eastern Orthodox Church still will have nothing to do with it, to their credit. So before this theory emerged, how did the church understand what happened at the cross? Well, the church understood it with scriptural images like the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Or the father in the parable of the prodigal son running out, humiliating himself in public to meet his wayward son in the village. The way it was understood for all these centuries was not that there was some third party of God the Son being separate from God the Father to do this thing Billy did in our comic. No, it was God himself in the Son. God himself dying for our sakes. As we see roughly illustrated in ending number three of our parable. If you'll look back there with me for just a moment. In ending number three, mom notices that the pitcher of lemonade is about to fall on Johnny's head, but her anger at his disobedience does not lessen the intensity of her love for him. So she rushes across the room, reprocesses, you might say, that anger into grace, Just as she reaches the table, the pitcher begins to fall and she quickly knocks it aside. The pitcher shatters and mother sustains a deep cut in her arm. Her arm begins to bleed profusely. She quickly grabs the towel that's across her shoulder and winds it tightly around her arm. Blood continues to soak through the towel and drip onto the floor. Johnny is crying here. Because he sees his mother getting hurt for him. And he knows it is his fault. In this ending, this third ending, there is no Billy in the next room. It's not that there's no Jesus, right? But in this ending, God is one. God in Jesus has sacrificed himself. Mom reaches out to the frightened child and says quietly, It's all right, Johnny. 
I love you anyway, and I forgive you. And it's okay, in three days I'll be able to take off this ugly bandage and my arm will heal. In mom's all-encompassing embrace and with the sound of mom's words of forgiveness penetrating his consciousness, Johnny's guilt melts away. And with it also melts away his will to disobey her. He knows that mom got hurt for him and she still loves him. The good news is that God's wrath has never been aimed at us, but toward our sin. He is not a God who inflicted punishment upon his son that was due to us, but a God who took the consequence of our sin upon himself in order to rescue us from sin's grip. Well, despite all of this, At this point, we should probably expect this penal view of God will continue to reign in the Western church and society. But I want to take a few minutes, the few minutes I have left, to explain to you why that's a problem. Why we should do what we can to break loose from its chains and to extricate those ideas from our own hearts. Whether we're subscribing to the penal substitution theory in a formal, intellectual way, or if we just think of God as having a punishing streak. Either way, the fruit of it can frankly only be bad. Let me explain why. The first way that penal substitution can produce bad fruit in our lives is by having a stunting effect on our spiritual growth and maturity. And the reason is because it depicts God as ultimately having a narcissistic character. Just think about the mom in endings one and two. In those endings, she's put out because her son, pulling the lemonade pitcher off the table, has inconvenienced her, has caused her trouble. It's all about her. And then she makes a bad situation even more awful by getting vengeance, by taking her wrath out on either Johnny or Billy. This is what penal substitution teaches us that God is like. And if we think of God in this way, if we think of God as being that way, and yet we learn in church, right, hopefully, that the whole path to spiritual growth is for us to draw nearer to God, to be more vulnerable with God about all of our fears, all of our failures, this sort of puts us in a bind. If God is like mom number one or number two, and yet the path to spiritual growth is to open ourselves up to him anymore, that puts us in a bind, at least subconsciously. Subconsciously, we're not going to want to do any of that. Not with a God who's a narcissist. Think about Johnny. If he has a mom who behaves like endings one or two, do you think he's going to be vulnerable with her? You think he's going to share with her when he makes a mistake? No. 
<laughs> He's going to hide that mistake, buddy. Right? His inclination is going to be to just to keep his head down and stay out of mom's way. Right? Because he's going to be afraid of doing anything that might incur more of her wrath because he's seen it once. So this is the first bad fruit of the penal view of God is it stunts our spiritual growth because we intellectually know we're supposed to draw near to God, but in our hearts and our subconscious, is he really the type of person we want to be around? I mean, we'll accept forgiveness that he offers. But going further than that and partnering with him for self-examination, for repentance, no thanks. Perhaps this is why evangelicalism and contemporary Christian music tends to be all about God forgiving us, right? While largely ignoring God changing our character to be more loving, you know, like his. Those songs are just thanking God that we're not in trouble anymore and keeping our head down. So that's the first bad fruit, is it stunts our spiritual growth. The second bad fruit of believing God is wrathful toward his creatures, of believing that that is central to his character, is that it can lead us to then be more wrathful toward others. See, penal substitution teaches us that God cares more about his own satisfaction, him being, himself being satisfied, than he cares about our well-being. Right? And what we intuit from that is that our feelings don't matter to God. Our feelings don't matter to him. Well, some suggest that this sense teaches us that it's okay then, it's actually a pretty short jump, from God doesn't care about my feelings to I don't care about your feelings. Right? To disregarding other people's emotions. The logic is if God doesn't care about my feelings, why should I care about others' feelings? Especially if the whole thing is I'm supposed to be like God. In 2017, a study showed that Christians who hold the penal substitution view as well as to the gender complementarianism view, which is the view that some spiritual roles can only be fulfilled by men, Christians that hold to both of those have a lower sense of responsibility for reducing pain and suffering in the world. I'm starting to explain a lot of things here in this world we live in these days. This doesn't just impact our capacity for empathy in our personal relationships. No, it, it affects how we view whole groups of people, how we treat whole groups of people. There's a lot been written on penal substitution producing some, a phenomenon called the undeserving other or the bad outsider phenomenon, where Christians tend to just not just lack empathy, but actually relish punishment for those outside of their tribe. And knowing that American history has been soaked in penal substitution theory from its beginnings, it begins to make sense of many of these hyper-penal elements in American culture and history. 
Right? We all know that the southern roots of racism and slavery were justified by a distorted Christianity that viewed black people as subhumans and therefore an undeserving group of others, right? who therefore deserved enslavement. Right? Black people were viewed as the outside other. And to this day, we are the most incarcerated country in the world. You know how many people are in jail in our country right now? 2.1 million people. Bonkers, right? Absolutely bonkers, right? But America's penal system and the death penalty, which gets most of its support from evangelical Christians, actually, it's based upon principles of penalizing or getting rid of the other who has shown themselves to be undeserving rather than rehabilitating. Right? They're not worthy of rehabilitation. They're monsters. In the past two decades, since 9-11, the undeserving other phenomenon has manifested in attitudes toward Muslims Right? since 9-11. I could go on with the examples. You can read the footnotes, right? Those are some biggies. If penal substitution says that God was angry at us and counted us as worthless when we were apart from Christ and in our sin, then it makes sense that penal substitution trains Christians to view non-Christians as bad outsiders worthy not of love but worthy of wrath. So that's the second bad fruit is it inhibits our capacity to have empathy toward others, particularly those who are different from us, those who we perceive as sinners or outside of God's will or whatever. But a final bad fruit of penal substitution is the effect it has on those who have experienced significant trauma in their own lives. Nagasawa explains how when a traumatized person is taught the penal substitution view of God, it's likely to cause them to either fight or flee the faith or freeze in their spiritual growth like we already talked about. But it, it triggers a fight or flight response. In fact, it's no coincidence that pastors who hold the penal substitution view are prone to use Fear and anger as motivators, right, in their preaching. You've all heard of fire and brimstone sermons. You've probably sat through a, a few of them, right? But what, what we fail to grasp, we preachers, when we preach that way, is that fear and anger don't change hearts. Only love changes hearts. As Anglican Bishop William Temple wrote, fear of punishment might deter me from sinful action, but it cannot change my sinful desires. Only love can change my sinful desires. And we see that with Johnny in ending number three. Glancing back at it one last time, Johnny now realizes that his mom's initial admonition to leave the tablecloth alone was not an arbitrary exercise of her will. There was no, you do what I say, Johnny, because I say so. Right? That's mom wanted to. Mom's will was an exercise of love for Johnny. Right? Mom didn't want Johnny to get hurt. God gives us his commands. He knows that sin hurts us. 
Given the realities of glass, pitchers, tables, little boys, and the force of gravity, mom's law was an expression of her love. Johnny only discovers the depth of that love, though, when he sees mom knock the pitcher aside and sustain a cut in her arm for him, for his sake. And witnessing that costly love changes Johnny. Makes Johnny not want to do it again. Doesn't say he won't, right? But it begins to change his desire. When we come to recognize that God's anger was at sin, not at us, and that he expressed that anger by going to the cross to ransom and heal us from sin's effects, this invites us to give up the habit of hating sinners and learn to hate only sin and what it does to all of us. The cross invites us to express our own anger at sin when we see it or at unbelief, not by inflicting suffering on the sinner, but by being willing to endure suffering ourselves like Jesus did. What what a difference that makes. What a difference it makes if, if, if my grief and anger at abortion doesn't lead me to rail and hate on people that do it, all right? but actually leads me to sacrifice something of myself to make a difference in one person's life that might be headed down that path. What an enormous difference. It's easy. It's easy to be outraged, right? It's even easy to write the check to the the people fighting it or whatever. It costs something, just like it costs Jesus to go to the cross. It costs something. That's when we make a change. We, our lives can make a change about something that we're passionate about. And until then, I don't really want to hear it, right? And this goes to me too. Today, we can celebrate the good news that God's wrath has never been aimed at us but toward our sin. He's not a God who inflicted punishment upon his son that was due to us, but a God who took the consequence of sin upon himself in order to rescue us from its grip. And so I want to close by just asking, how is the Holy Spirit moving on your heart with all of this today? Perhaps for far too long, our hearts have held on to the view. I mean, it didn't have to come from reading some theology book. We've just had the view from whatever way, the view that God has a punishing streak. Have you believed that? It's easy to read the Old Testament and maybe jump to that conclusion. I addressed that in the footnotes if that's been popping in your head. Today, can we just speak the good news to our hearts that that, that is not part of the gospel? That's not part of the gospel, God the Maybe if some of us are honest, we haven't been inclined to draw too near to God because we actually don't feel safe around Him. Maybe we had, maybe the powerful people in our lives, we haven't been able to be vulnerable with, so why would we be vulnerable with God? Maybe we could minister to our heart that there actually is no condemnation waiting for us. 
maybe some of us will be willing to admit today to ourselves or another person that we feel anger toward God. Well, even though anger at God may be rooted in a distorted view of Him in one way or another, it's nonetheless real anger to God. And so being able to admit that is huge for us to ever move through it. Or maybe today is the day that we repent of demonizing other human beings in the name of sins. And we ask God, we begin asking God to help us to love them, only hate their sin, but also to give us direction and enough love in our hearts to choose to love them sacrificially in ways that might illumine Christ's love for them through us. Whatever it is, will you join me in a short prayer? of just admitting where we're at to God and asking Him to heal our broken hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whatever has come up for us during this sermon, wherever we feel like we're at with you, take this moment just to say it before you. Even if we're not quite there, we'll we'll try to mention it to somebody else after. God, we ask that you would take from our hearts any vision of you or impression of you that is not true to your character. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.